0: Hello everybody and welcome back. This is episode three, which is going to cover chapter 16, which is the transformation of Europe. So this talks about changes within Europe um, from 1500 to 1750. So we'll talk about religious reformation, we'll talk about scientific revolution, enlightenment, um, economic changes. Um, So we'll talk about a ton of stuff, which will be pretty much interesting and kind of consolidate your knowledge of the exploration we talked about in chapter um, 15 or the initial exploration. So, let's go ahead and begin. So, our first section is Religious Reformation, which is from 1517 to 1563. So, let us begin by setting the scene. This is a period in European history where we're seeing people step away Slowly, but they are stepping away from the grasp of the Catholic Church and kind of dabbling with other things. This is the period that is the end of the Renaissance because the Renaissance goes from 1350 to 1550. So this is the end and the years following the Renaissance. So the main deity that is in control, not deity, uh, but the main leadership of Europe is known as the papacy. The papacy is the central administration of the Roman Catholic Church. And the head of this administration, of course, is the Pope. So remember, our social stratification of the Catholic Church is the Pope is at the top because he has direct communication with God. Then we have our cardinals, who are responsible for regional control of different areas, as well as the election of new popes. Then we have um, priests, and then, of course, the Catholics themselves. So how did religious reforms affect the papacy? Well, it really kind of showed the dirty laundry of the papacy. These reforms were brought about because of grievances of different groups of people or just the general um, mistrust of the entire organization. So basically, it showed the corruption and the misuse of power within the church. Now, you may ask, how did we get to here? How did we get to this questioning of the church when not too long before the church was very much centrifugal to European society, as well as being unquestionable um, by anyone, kings, subjects, anybody? Well, we have to look at the Renaissance. The Renaissance was related to the papacy by initially showing the papacy as being this very powerful, wealthy entity. So the Renaissance was related to this, first off, by being patrons. Um, So you'd have your artists, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, um, you'd have Raphael, all these major painters being patroned by the church, by the Pope, by cardinals. So we see this there in the Renaissance um, and we still see some favoring amongst the people, but at the same time, this is when people start to question um, leaders, church leaders, and even though they're patrons of the arts and very wealthy, they also are like okay well we also know that maybe you have a wife and you're not supposed to have a wife because you're a priest or a cardinal or you're a pope and you're not supposed to have children and you're not supposed to have um affairs or adulterous relations but you guys do and you guys drink and you guys gamble and you guys all all have these corrupt dealings so this is a time when the questioning is starting so this is not when They are coming full force at the church, but it's the beginning. Um, So one of the corrupted ideas of the Catholic Church was the indulgence system and how this was related to um, the Catholic Church was basically a person could be forgiven of all their sins and the afterlife punishment for those sins if they paid the church. So let's say that I was a terrible person. I stole, I lied, I cheated, I murdered, I did all this stuff. I wasn't sorry, whatever. But I was very rich. If I went to the church and was like, oh, please, Father, forgive me. I'll, you know, donate all this money or give this money or give this to you or buy these indulgences. um, And then all my sins will be forgiven. And basically, that's what they would do. They would buy or purchase these indulgences and then they would be forgiven. And when they died, they would be in heaven. They're very corrupt. Um, And one specific person, one specific priest um, or monk, Martin Luther, was a German priest. And he did not like the corruption of the church. He actually preached opposite of what the church was saying. So the church was saying there's many factors for salvation. One is make sure you're being a good person, that you have to perform all these extra deeds that were leading to this corruption within the Catholic Church. But Martin Luther turned the head of this ideology, and he actually preached that through faith alone, you could reach salvation. So you didn't have to pay for indulgences. You didn't have to go pray 10 times a day. You didn't have to do all these kind of archaic tasks, but rather you just have to have faith in God, faith in Jesus, and just be steadfast, um, and then that's how you would reach salvation. And this was very um, pleasant to hear. If you were someone who may maybe didn't really care for some of the traditions or the customs of the Catholic Church, so this was kind of a breath of fresh air for some people. Well, Martin Luther basically is the catalyst that begins what is known as the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was a reform movement that began as a resistance resistance against the Roman Catholic Church. So this was just a way to question the Catholic Church. They were saying, no, you probably shouldn't be doing that. And we're going to begin preaching and really looking at the Bible and making it um, available to the people and have them interpret it. We're not going to just leave it up to a specific class of people to determine it for everybody. Now this turned Europe on its head because it greatly divided countries, you know, because you'd have your staunch Catholics and then you'd have your people who are recent Protestants. So this caused a lot of conflict, internal conflict for countries. Um, in response to the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church wasn't just going to let go of all its power just like that. No, it knew and understood that in order to keep its power and its prestige and its wealth, that it did need to reform. So it reformed several things. One was clerical training. So how you became a priest or how you became a nun or what have you, that process was reformed. So it became stricter. It became um, more, uh, what would you call it? More honorable, kind of, they were very strict in the process. Um, They also did this to beat out the Protestant Reformation. They didn't want the Protestants to take over power, so they knew they they needed to do something. They also got rid of some of the in, some of the corrupted issues like the indulgences. They were more strict on behavior and conduct of priests, of cardinals, of popes. So they were trying to reform. Um, one of the things that came out of this refer- counter Reformation. Um, or the Catholic Reformation, was the creation of the Jesuits. So in 1540, um, a new religious order called the Society of Jesus was created by Ignatius Loyola, and he helped to slow down the Protestant Reformation. So with this new order, he gained converts, not necessarily in Europe, but more overseas. So we have this expansion of Um, into the new world and elsewhere, and we're seeing missionaries leave to go preach to these people. Um, This is the chance that this group, the Jesuits, would get to convert others. So moving on from the Religious Reformation, we go into more traditional ways of thinking. And of course, my favorite, witch hunts. So there's two things to talk about in this. Let's go back to really think how people thought at this time. Or prior to this time, because remember, people are starting to question the world. Prior to this period of the end of the Renaissance, people literally thought that the cause of disasters or deaths or disease or whatever was caused as punishment. So they viewed natural disasters as punishments from God caused by supernatural forces. So they would blame these unseen forces or spirits and and they would actually seek out people with special talents or what we would call witches. So they would go and seek out these people, these witches, in order to help them with these issues that were going on or these kind of supernatural events. So when they would seek out these witches, then, you know, maybe it didn't go according to plan, so they'd get angry and they'd be vengeful against the person who was trying to help them. And this led to a whole bunch of persecution of individuals just because they were accused witches. So this is where we come up with the term witch hunt. Um, It was the pursuit of suspected witches. And this was huge in Northern Europe. Not so much Italy, not so much Spain, but really you see it a lot in England. You see it in Germany. You see it in France. um, You see it in Scotland. So it's really a Northern European I don't want to say tradition, but very centered in that region of Europe. Um, And it was, again, just searching out for witches um, and killing them, basically putting them on trial and killing them, blaming them. They're basically scapegoats. So moving on from this religious and traditional initial way of thinking, we have the creation of the scientific revolution. So the idea that, the scientific revolution was rooted in, um, come from Greco-Roman manuscripts. And these are the ideas and the beliefs and the innovations of the Greeks and the Romans. So basically all the knowledge of these ancient or classical civilizations were influential to the basis of science in Europe at this time. So we have a couple of scientists we're going to talk about. First, we're going to talk about Nicholas Copernicus. Nicholas Copernicus was a Polish monk and mathematician. And he is the one that initiated this new scientific era, which is actually pretty surprising. Because remember, he is a monk. He is a part of the Catholic Church. And he says, you know, I mean, I can still be religious and believe in God and understand that, you know, there is science in the world. Things happen not just by God you know. So he is the one that really starts this. The next scientist that comes into play is Johannes Kepler. So Johannes is a German scientist. And he basically took Copernicus's ideas um, of that model and of planets and the evolution of these planets and celestial bodies and strengthened it. So he really did his research. He studied. He'd, he came up with these new ideas. And he was like, yes, Copernicus was right. This is correct, and I have the evidence to back it. And he basically proved um, that Copernicus was right, that, you know, you had these planets making elliptical motions around each other or around the sun and so forth and so on. Another man comes into play, this one from Italy, and his name is Galileo Galilei. Um, He is an Italian scientist, And he built a telescope. He wasn't the person who invented the telescope, so let's not get that confused. But he built a telescope, and with that telescope, he confirmed the heliocentric theory, um, which means that the sun was the center of the solar system. So initially, people thought the Earth was the center, and that the sun and all the other planets and the stars and everything moved around the Earth. Well, Galileo's like, no, that's not right. It's actually the other way around. The sun is the center and everything revolves around the, or revolves around the sun. So he comes up with this amazing idea that shatters a lot of traditional thoughts. And he becomes um, a staunch critic of the Catholic Church and he becomes an enemy of the church. Um, and unfortunately, he is put under house arrest and he dies under house arrest just for defying the church um, Sadly. And then if we go into England, we have a Englishman named Isaac Newton, and he is a mathematician and a physicist, or what we would say physicist, because he worked in optics, and he also worked in the laws of gravity, and he created physics, or at least like the basic terms of physics. So without Newton, we would not have the delicious cookie called Fit, uh, Fig Newton, which are named after him. <laughs> and of course, we would not have physics, or the basis of physics and gravity and optics. So we need to thank Isaac Newton for his contribution to science as well as to history. So we talk about all this changing of the church or separation of the church or kind of drifting from the church. But what did this revolution, this scientific revolution, do to the church? Well, basically, it challenged the church. It challenged the deeply rooted beliefs and teachings about the meanings of the church. So everything that the church preached or taught, um, basically, not that it blew out the window entirely, but it was questioned, and it was like, "Well, you did say this, but we know that it's actually this." So their authority was being questioned. And so this is what happened to the church. In addition to the scientific revolution, we have another um, wave of innovation, and this is a more of a philosophical. Um, evolution or revolution, and it is called the Enlightenment. So the Enlightenment is a philosophical movement that began in the mid-1700s, and it fostered new beliefs in rationality. So basically having rational thought, thinking things out, creating philosophy and ideas that, you know, fit with the modern times. So how did the Enlightenment change the way people thought? Well, it really allowed people to be more optimistic um, to new discoveries that were being made. So the Enlightenment allowed people not to feel bad about liking some of these new scientist ideas or accepting these new ideas that were coming out, whether it be mathematics, um, scientific, or philosophical, or whatever. That it's okay, you know, I mean, it's a right to un- be able to enjoy this and be able to question but not feel bad about it. So it allowed for a very optimistic attitude within Europe um, and within the world. So what happened to thinkers um, and their writings? So remember, we have issue with the scientific revolution and the scientists involved there. Well, we also have issues with the Enlightenment. And um, the church is very anti-Enlightenment because, again, it is another way that they are losing power um or losing prestige. So society saw these in- individuals, or at least society of the church, saw these individuals as detrimental and corrupting. So they thought that they were having a negative influence on society and that they were corrupting them, kind of like Socrates corrupting the youth. But, yeah, similar, <laughs> similar. But they thought they were corrupt and that it wasn't good. It was going to cause disunity and dysfunction and chaos. So what they did was a couple things. First, they banned their books. So if you wrote anything and you were an Enlightenment thinker, your books and your writings would be banned or burned. And you could be exiled for spreading these ideas. So if you were caught spreading these ideas in a place that you're not supposed to spread these ideas, you would be exiled. So it wasn't a, a fun time to be an enlightened thinker or a philosopher either. Um, so we do have Voltaire, who is one of these Enlightenment uh, enlightened thinkers and founders. He says, no opinion is worth burning your neighbor for. And what he means by this is it doesn't matter what your neighbor or a friend or just a random person thinks, whatever they feel, however they act. It, that It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with you. So you shouldn't accuse them or harm them or hurt them just because they're different or just because they may view things in a different way or believe a different thing. So no opinion is worth killing, burning, or ostracizing your neighbor. It doesn't matter. So basically he was talking about the persecution or specifically he was talking about the persecution of witches, but I think it kind of has an overarching theme of just persecution in general. Um, Another Enlightenment thinker is John Locke. And he believed that rulers were at the whim of the people. So John Locke comes up with the idea that the people are the ones that have sole power. Even though it may not seem like they do, they're the ones that basically allow the leader to be the leader. Because without the support of the people, you really wouldn't have the legitimacy of the leader. So if the people don't like you, the people can rebel, even if you are king, even if you are absolute. People can still rebel and kill you and dethrone you or whatever. So. Really, at the root of it, the people are in control, not the king. And that's how it should be. The king should, or the leader, should be subject to the people, as well as have to uphold the law just like anybody else in society. Um, and how did monarchs feel about this and feel about the Enlightenment? Well, monarchs really selected the ideas that they liked. They selected the I- and endorsed the ideas that benefited them. If it did not benefit them or they did not like it, of course, they would persecute it. But if they did and it would benefit them, they would endorse it to the max. The clergy, on the other hand, opposed it entirely. They opposed the Enlightenment because it decreased their authority. So just remember, the Enlightenment, the Scientific Revolution, the Reformation are all events in European history that really are starting to decline the power and prestige of the Catholic Church. So, moving on to section five, which is the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie is more economic. So, the bourgeoisie is basically a class or a new class. So, they are early modern Europeans. Um, It's a class of well-off citizens who make their fortunes from manufacturing, finance, or commerce. They have three different types of power they have social power economic power and political power so their social power is displayed so they have large homes they maintain servants so they can afford to have servants and they have these items so these exotic commodities that they can afford to buy which elevates their status so if you can have this newest fashion from somewhere or this new type of product or this spice then you would have a higher hold or you'd be more popular or whatever. So socially, they were powerful because they were seen as better than others. Economically, they are the ones that produce large quantities of good. goods. sorry. They are the ones that increase trade. They are the ones that really made trade come alive. The bourgeoisie are basically your merchant class, your people who created their wealth, not born into it or the initial ones, not necessarily born into it, but the ones who created their wealth and keep it. Um, politically, they were free from censorship and religious persecution because of the wealth and the power that they had. Um, so it was pretty good to be bourgeoisie. This is also where we get the term bougie. Bougie means bourgeoisie. It's a kind of a, um, a modernized version of the same word It just thinks that you're, thinks you're better than. So it, that's where it comes from. So. While we had this increase in the bourgeoisie and this creation of this new class, we still had poor people and poor people that lived in the city made up the vast majority of people that lived in cities. Um, but they lived completely different than the bourgeoisie. They lived desperately. They had to survive on begging or stealing or by their, their, their talents or their wits. So they did not have as successful a life as possibly the bourgeoisie. Now, marriage and education are two things that the bourgeoisie took very seriously. Marriage was seen as a way to advance or continue their advancement up the social ladder. So, marriage increased the bourgeoisie's social standing by marrying their children to strategic individuals. So, say you have this wealthy bourgeoisie family and they have three daughters. Well, they would probably benefit from marrying those daughters off to noblemen. And noblemen were willing, or at least low-ranking noblemen, or maybe the youngest children of noblemen, were willing to give the titles of royalty to these wealthy because of the money. They needed money. As for education, the bourgeoisie actually did a lot for education. They established schools. Now, of course, they established schools for the wealthy. This wasn't open public school. But they established schools for the wealthy and they required their children to be educated and trained. Um, daughters did receive an education, but it was a less formal education. It was more um, an education for domestic duties. But some did receive an education that would allow them to be bookkeepers or help their husband or help their family in financial um, centers. Um, businesses initially were run, were run by the banks because the banks are the ones that held the most capital. So they gave out loans, they gave out um, loans, not only to individuals, but also to the government. So the banks are the ones that held it. And then it switched. So when we see this increase in the bourgeoisie, it switched from the bank to the hands of the merchants and the bourgeoisie. So businesses initially were controlled by the banks and then switched to be controlled by the merchants, the ones that were actually running the businesses. And we had two types of businesses. We had joint stock companies, which were businesses backed by the government or by a government charter. And you could, as an individual, buy stock um, or shares into the joint stock company. So it's like funding an adventure or funding an expedition or funding something, funding a business with multiple people putting in money too. Um, a stock exchange. Is a place where shares in a company are brought, bought and sold. So the stock exchange, think of like New York Stock Exchange, this is where you go to buy these stocks or to place bets or bids on, on stock. So it's a place where you obtain um, these resources for business. Um, then we have the flute. The flute is also called a flyboat which is a very large capacity cargo ship. And this was beneficial during this period because we see this increase in, tra- increase in trade and this is the exploration period. Um, we need bigger boats that could trade more products. Um, so these were very, very important. And then we had the India Man. These were heavily armed merchant ships that were also heavily, heavily, heavily. When I say heavily armed, I'm not just exaggerating. They were heavily armed. And this was basically for the protection of the goods against pirates, against marauders, against, just you know, other countries stealing from you. So, you know, a lot of ships were lost. A lot of merchant ships were lost. So they had to figure out a way to save their capital. Um, we see a new class arise called the gentry, which is just a land-owning class. So it would be these people who would obtain large tracts of land, Um, And they were right below the aristocracy. So you'd have your nobility and your royalty, then you'd have your aristocracy, and then you'd have your gentry. So they weren't quite like millionaires or lords, but they were about there. They were the gentry. And then, of course, we also have the peasants and the laborers. So section six is peasants and laborers. And the peasants and laborers were affected Twenty four seven. So they had no control over what happened to them or how they could do anything because when they had no power and everything else affect, you know, kind of weighted on them. So three reasons that peasants and the poor um, kind of weren't in the best straits were war, the consolidation of land ownership, and pasture land. So how war affected peasants was that it really kind of lowered the material condition of peasants. So they lost a lot. Because of warfare, they may not have jobs, they may be injured, they may not have a place to live, they may starve, what have you. So it really, times of war were not good for peasants or for the poor. Um, when we talk about the consolidation of land ownership, we're talking about the increase in slave labor, the need for slave labor. So landowners do not want to have to pay their laborers. So this also limits the poor. So it's one less, Job that they could have because now these people are wanting to have slaves, which are more beneficial and less costly than having to pay for, uh, you know, a wage worker. And then, of course, pasture land. Pasture land was something that had not changed for a couple centuries, for about 200 years, almost 300. So, since 1300, pasture land and how it was worked by peasants did not change. So, you still had um, people being tied to land, not as permanent but it was situations that were hard to get out of in the sense like think about it people who are poor in modern days it's a a lot of the times depending where you're at it's hard to not be poor it's usually a very vicious cycle you either have a lot of loan debt or you have a lot of debt period or you can't begin to meet or you have limited education or whatever but it's a vicious cycle and this isn't something that's recent this has always been how the poor class Lives and it's um it's hard and it's very hard. So at the same time that all this kind of stuff was going on for the peasants and laborers, we had a climate clim- climate event happen, and this was known as the Little Ice Age, which was a century long period of cold climate. So this is when we see a decrease in temperatures, um, and an increase in destruction for people. So the five effects of the Little Ice Age were glaciers. They grew larger and were huge. Rivers and canals were basically clogged up or frozen over, so it created difficulty for trade to occur. Um, And then, of course, the growing season was shortened by two months. The ripening season slowed down, and because of the slow process of ripening, early frost would damage things that are already taking longer to ripen. And then you have an increase in humidity and an increase in rain and snow. We also have another environmental issue which is called de- deforestation. Um, it is when trees are used for fuel source and some specific fuel sources are mining charcoal production in the timber market. Basically deforestation is the removal of trees faster than you can replace trees. When you cut down all these trees and you have no means or no intention of replacing them, that can cause a lot of issues. So the causes of deforestation, like I said earlier, were building ships, um, the ironworks, the mines, the population needing wood, and of course money, and of course the coal production. And how did this affect poor people? Well, it caused them not to be able to afford things. They could not afford wood products, which would lead to a series of of rebellions that sweep across Europe. And it just increased misery and the hatred of the bourgeoisie class and the decadence of the bourgeoisie. So we go ahead and move on to women and the family. Uh, women had a very strategic role in this place, depending on your social status. So women could inherit monarchy. So you could be a queen, you could inherit it from your father or an uncle or a brother. Um, they could inherit properties, and they could inherit assets upon the death of parent or spouse. If you were unmarried, women could Could not have a lot of control, I mean, did not have a lot of control, sorry, but would be controlled by fathers or brothers. So unmarried women had no control. They were told what to do and how to do it by fathers or by their um, older brothers or younger brothers. Widows could independently control property and possessions. If you did not get married, um, you could have eventually your own property and your own way of living. So maybe it was good to be a widow. Spouses were chosen by class rank and it depended on how where you lived. So if you were wealthy, of course, you had an arranged marriage. If you were middle class or poor, you got to choose your spouses. Um, bourgeoisie families, the wealthy families arranged their marriage to further that family interest. So like I kind of discussed earlier, marrying off nobles or whatever. What delayed Europeans from getting married? So we do see at this time... Um, that there is an increase in age for people who are getting married so a lot of times we think people got married like at 13 well no at this time people got married in their 20s just similar to how people get married today Um, but why men decided to wait until they could live on their own so they wanted to be self-sufficient not have to um, rely on parents so around their late 20s is when they would start looking for a marriage women would work to help their families as servants or what have you. And basically, they're trying to save for a dowry because the more money you have in your dowry, the less um, reliance you have to have on parents. So basically, the same kind of the same reason, just trying to be self-sufficient. Um, the birth rate, because of this decrease in younger marriages, we see that it was steady and it was limited because of those late marriages um unmarried women made up the t- 10% of births in urban areas so think about it 10% of the births in a city were from unmarried women and how this came about would be through like uh servants female servants um laborers prostitutes whatever but these women would get pregnant and whether it be from conceptions consensual consensual sexual relations or through um, sexual assault uh, or rape. It would still be a birth. Um, Sometimes women who could not take care of their children would abandon them either on the steps of a wealthy person or at a church or a convent. So if they could not afford to take care of it or raise it, they would give it away or they would leave it as an orphan. Um, brothels and rape increase during this period. Because of that delayed marriage, we see an in- increase in the chances of young women being pulled in pro- into prostitution. So when we see young women, um, we're talking about vulnerable young girls who maybe um, were raised in the country and are first-time city dwellers. They come in, they're taken advantage of by these fast-talking, swindly men, and they're put into prostitution or into brothels. Um, and we also see an increase in rape. Um, This is a time uh, when women are very, very vulnerable in history, especially in the cities. But sadly, that is not something that has changed um, too much. Bourgeoisie parents wanted children to obtain a good education and to socially climb through marriage. Um, So those were their two goals, to have educated children and to have good matches or good marriages for their children. Um, For men, of course, They were educated in Greek and Latin, modern languages, and law. Law specifically helped with the trade and commerce section of the bourgeoisie. Women, like I said earlier, less formally trained or educated, um, but could help as bookkeepers and could inherit businesses. Wealthy women, on the other hand, were very literate. They were educated. They could own and inherit property and businesses. They just had the life. Wealthy women had a lot of social standing. They had a lot of pool, even though it may not be physical political pool they had a lot of behind the scenes so we go ahead and move on to state development so when we talk about state development we're talking about the creation of countries creation of modernized, modernized not like how we think how we generally think of modern like today but modern as in you know they're starting to evolve or starting to be similar to what we know of these countries today mm-hmm. so the holy Roman Holy, <laughs> Holy Roman Empire was a loose federation of German states, German principalities, um, headed by one individual. So the Holy Roman Emperor was a person that controlled a region. It was Germany, Austria, and in some cases, in, um, in parts of France. The Habsburgs were a powerful European family that provided many of the individuals who were Holy Roman Emperors. So many of the Holy Roman Emperors came from the Habsburg dynasty. Um, they also founded the Austrian Empire. So the Habsburgs were um, interesting. They had a lot of inbreeding and a lot of incestuous relationships that led to a lot of deformed children um, and disfigured children, which allowed for the sterilization of future generations just because of the incestuous relationships. So the Habsburgs were all over the place. The reason they had incestuous relationships was the same reason as most people do is to keep the bloodline pure. Because you are wealthy, we want to keep the bloodline royal. We want to keep it blue. So we're going to marry our siblings or our cousins. And it's super disgusting. But there we have it. Germany did have a view about the Pope. They weren't very supportive. Remember, Martin Luther was a German. So they were kind of wary of the Pope. So they were not supportive but rather they were loyal to German nationalism. I mean, we see this creation of this German identity, German patriotism, extreme patriotism of an individual's country or home country. So what ended up happening to the Holy Roman Empire? Well, the power was taken away from the emperor and it was given to individual states and given more centralized power. Instead of giving all the power to one person, it was um actually it was decentralized sorry not centralized it was decentralized to these individual states instead of having all the control and power in one individual so we also see religious policies changing across europe due to the reformations um in spain we see that the spanish kings um especially philip ii actively defend the catholic church and are always trying to promote Catholicism, Mm -hmm. and specifically, Philip II used the Inquisition to enforce this devotion to the Catholic Church. So, the Inquisition is just the persecution of people who were not Catholic or suspected heretics. So, they would be arrested, put on trial, probably tortured, most of the time burned at the stake or killed. So, the Inquisition, if you got taken by the Spanish Inquisition, you were very much out of luck, because most of the time you didn't survive it. Um, So, heresy, Heretic, heresy, um, all this are suspected Protestants at this time. So heresy can be a lot of things, but for the Catholics, they mm-hmm. were Protestants. So suspected Protestants, as well as anybody who criticized the king. So if you were a Protestant or you were a critic of the king, you could be arrested and executed. And then we go to France, which is north of Spain. Mm-hmm. Um we have a king called Louis XIV. He is also known as the Sun King, and he will be one of our absolute rulers later on. He is very supportive of the church. An absolute ruler is an individual who has complete authoritarian power. They control everything. They control the economy. They control military. They control politics. They control religion and social and cultural aspects of the country. They control everything. Louis XIV is one of these. That's why he's, considered, or he's nicknamed the Sun King, because the sun is the center of the solar system. Louis was the center of France. He believed everything revolved around him. So if he was staunchly Catholic, everybody had to be staunchly Catholic. Um, Louis XIV's grandfather created the Edict of Nantes, or Nantes. Um, the Edict of Nantes granted religious freedom to Protestants, because Louis's grandfather had Protestant supporters, um, so he wanted to include these Protestants. But uh, Louis XIV was like, no, 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 we're going to revoke this and everybody needs to be a Catholic. Um, and then to the to the West, we have good old England and what's going on there with King Henry VIII, um, the one who had all these wives. Um, so King Henry VIII is a king of England and he establishes the Church of England. So he decides to completely break off with um, the Catholic Church. The reason being is he is not take granted a divorce. So Henry wants a divorce because his wife does not give him a son. So Henry is initially married to Catherine of Aragon, who is the daughter, the youngest daughter of Isabella um, and Ferdinand, um, which are the Spanish king and queen, which are the ones who fund Columbus's journey. So Isabella and Ferdinand are not too happy about this, but um, Catherine is especially not happy about this. um, Catherine of Aragon. So Catherine... Is the Queen of England, the wife of Henry VIII, the first wife, daughter of Isabella and Ferdinand of Spain, um, Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon. Um, They have this very strong, very beautiful daughter, Catherine, who unfortunately has not been able to successfully produce a male heir for Henry. And Henry gets very upset about this. So he asks the king to dissolve his marriage um, of Catherine on the basis of not being consummated because he did not gain an heir, so they believe that consummation, or they try to believe that consummation is only real if you have a male heir. If you have children and they're female, then technically you can have grounds for divorce. So anyway, Henry doesn't get what he wants. The Pope basically denies him, so he's like, "Well, screw you guys. I'm gonna make my own church," and that's just what he does. He creates the Church of England, England or the Anglican Church. So again, an annulment is the um, Dissolving of a marriage, just basically another a word for divorce. Um. So what Henry ended up doing, Henry VIII, um, went to the monasteries and the convents, which are Catholic buildings, and he used his authority to disband the churches. He also confiscated the lands and the possessions of the churches. He took them, and he used them for two things. He either gave the lands to political allies, so his friends and supporters, or he sold the land and helped to finance his newly built navy so those are the two things that he did with the land and then of course henry has two daughters he does have one son so his daughters are mary the first or who would be mary the first or bloody mary we have elizabeth the first the virginal queen and then of course we have his son um oh my gosh what is his son name and of course, his son Edward. So these are his three children. Um, and the really only real successful one, of course, we all know is Elizabeth I. But we won't go into that yet. So Elizabeth I comes to power. She does not have any heirs because remember, she does not get married. She never marries. She is a virgin queen. And she leaves her kingdom to a cousin. James I. So James I is a Scottish king and he inherits the throne from Elizabeth upon death, and he is now the king of England and of Scotland. And he is the one Jamestown is named after, and he's the one that basically overlooks the initial um, plans of expansion under the English Empire. So we go ahead and move on to the monarchies in England and France and talk more about some conflict that goes on in these two areas. So in England we have a civil war. So we have James the 1st and we have Charles the 1st and we have all these kind of not so great rulers come to power and basically the English civil war is a conflict between the monarchy and the parliament. Cuz remember we have this cohesive relationship between the, the the monarch and the parliament the legislative body well they're not working together. So we have this kind of conflict, this literal war between these two factions. And what ends up happening is King Charles is arrested and he loses the war. He's arrested and executed. And we see the rise of um Oliver Cromwell come to power and he takes over um, and he doesn't really do a great job. So <laughs> um the Estates General in France, is the legislative body. So, like we have the English Parliament, the House of Lords, the House of Commons in England that were legislative bodies, the French versions are the Estates General or the Estates General. They are the legislative body of France. So, King Louis, same guy, son king, he is that absolute ruler. That person has complete control who is super self centered. He, um, builds this huge palace, and it is the Palace of Versailles. Versailles, originally a small, tiny hunting lodge. It's turned into this immaculately ostentatious house. Um, so what Louis does is force the nobles to live there. So if you were a part of the nobility or royalty or what have you, or a lord or a lady or a marquis or a marquess, then you had to live in Versailles. Versailles was basically a tiny city. Thousands of people lived in Versailles. That's how big it was. Um, So going back to the English Civil War, we have Charles I in Parliament. Charles I, again, is not a very great king and he struggles with Parliament. Um, So for 11 years of his reign, he does not include Parliament in anything. And by the end, by 1640, he is forced Summon parliament to approve new taxes because of issues, financial, economic issues that were going on in the country. So he was kind of um, strong armed into calling parliament. We do have this idea that comes to power under the second treaties of civil government, which basically disputes mon- uh, monarchical claims. Um, so saying like, you know, who gets to come up with the idea of who's king? Like, you know, are you really better than me just because, you know, you have, you have more money or whatever? So it really talks about the authority of the monarch and who really has authority. So that's what the Second Treaties of Government discusses. Um, John Locke, again, rulers derive their power from the consent of the governed, so the consent of the people. So without the people, the ruler really has no power. That's all John Locke is talking about. And John Locke's ideas eventually will inspire the United States um, in their creation of their Declaration of Independence and of their Constitution and of their Bill of Rights and of the basic foundations of the United States. So John Locke is very influential to the United States. So the Thirty Years' War was a conflict between the Holy Roman Empire, England, and France. They're basically fighting over who's going to be the supreme and most dominant power in Europe. Well, two effects happen as a result of this conflict. That is long-lasting depopulation in these three regions, as well as an economic decline for all three areas. Um, So it's not very successful. Even though they're trying to fight over who's going to have the most power, in the end, nobody wins because they all lose a little something. Um, Were there good effects of the war? Yeah, we see dramatic improvement in organization, political organization, economic organization, and military organization, as well as an advance in skill and military technology. So this is a time of, even though we have this kind of really crappy result from this conflict, that we did gain some experience and some knowledge, and they use that to their advantage. Cities did become centers of state rivalries, So who could have the most advanced or most organized or most successful economy, political system, or military? Um, But the lengthening of warfare would cause stalemates. And basically, a stalemate is when neither side advances. So they're like, stuck; they cannot outwit the other person or the other side. So a stalemate occurs when neither side can advance. They are stuck where they are. Um, There's no way for them to, you know, beat the other one. They're kind of at a loss until one decides to give up or they decide to kind of talk things out. And that is the only way it really ends. So after this, we see the British Royal Navy really rise to prominence. And it all was under the creation of Henry VIII. So if Henry VIII never created this navy, we wouldn't see the amazing British Royal Navy that would end up becoming like a force to be reckoned with during exploration in thir- during the 18th century and even the 19th century. Um, on the other hand, we have the consolidation of England, Scotland, and Ireland. England merges with Scotland to create Great Britain. And then the English just go ahead and edit Ireland. And this is where we see the expansion of uh, the American colony or the British colony. Um, the balance of power was an international policy, kind of like the first international political um, or policy-based system. This was where Europeans um, and countries worked together to make sure one state was not more powerful or all-encompassing. So this was kind of a multi-state effort. just so, one couldn't outdo the other, basically. So France was Europe's most powerful, just in general, out of all aspects, politically, economically, socially. Um, they were pretty powerful at this point. Um, Britain had the greatest naval strength. Austria and Prussia had the largest land armies, so everybody had kind of their own little thing that they could be proud of, and those were each. So again, France was just generally very powerful. Britain had an amazing navy. Um, Austria and Prussia had very large armies, land armies, and Russia had pretty strategic location and environment, as well as large land land armies. And now we come to the last section, um, section 12, Paying the Piper. So this is the result of merchants and monarchies and government working together. So why were merchants and the government slash monarchy important to each other? Well, because they worked together. And when they worked together, it was more of a cohesive, organized relationship that allowed for governmental debt to be regulated. So merchants could come in and be like, "So you know, we're successful. We're making a lot of money. If you want to make a lot of money, you should probably listen to what we have to say. So it's kind of a symbiotic relationship, and of course, the merchants gained um prestige and gained um, favor from the government or from the monarch as well. Um do we see this happening today? Uh, of course, <laughs> this does happen. Um, private companies working with the government or the government working with private companies or businesses all the time and this doesn't necessarily have to just mean through economics it could mean through just general help we see that a lot of the time the government hires private military organizations to help them or private um, businesses to fund them or supply them so this does happen all the time today um now, on the flip side, even though we have kind of success going on in in Europe, in most of Europe, Spain is not doing too great. Spain um, is messed up economically, and this is all because of Philip II. Philip II imposes sales tax on the Spanish and on all his subjects to enforce Catholicism. So he's like, I'm going to create a sales tax to... Force people to convert to Catholicism. So if you were not a Catholic, you had to pay sales tax. If you were a Catholic, you were fine. But if you were not a Catholic, you had to pay sales tax. Um, and this really enforced people to embrace Catholicism because they didn't want to. I mean, not that they necessarily believed in Catholicism, but they just don't want to pay the taxes. Um, of course, we have the foreign wars, and wars always put a strain on the individuals involved. And specifically for Spain. It was an unbearable strain. It was very costly um, because they were constantly funding their military. They were losing a lot of economic function within their country. Um, the Dutch, on the other hand, were very successful. They um, had highly skilled and a very well-trained army and navy. So they succeeded um, in exploration and in economics um, greatly because they had all, they're were, they were very, very good. The Dutch are amazing ec- but they also are good politically because of their skilled military um, through their navy and their army. England also began to develop their own associations that combine government and business. so these are like those joint stock companies or these um, these relationships between small businesses or private businesses with the government or with the monarch. Um, and then we have this financial revolution. this is happening all at all at the same time just when States are financially sound. It is a good time in whatever state. Um, It is just this kind of boom. And we see this boom in France. We see this boom in the Dutch area. We see this boom in England. Not so much in Spain, but those three main areas. Um, Colbert put together four things that kind of helped to make um, the French successful. And one was a streamlined tax collection. So he kind of made the tax collection tax collection process faster and more efficient. Um, he promoted French manufacturing. So basically going out there and saying, you know, French make the best cheese or the French make the best champagne. So you should probably buy it from France. So just kind of really promoting. He also improved the transportation in France. And remember, improved transportation allows things to move a lot smoother. So that helps a lot for the economy. And of course, taxing foreign goods. So if you have these foreign imports coming in, um, you become very dependent on them. So by increasing the tax on foreign things, it's making people want to create things in France. Be more be more locally supportive. You know, Support local business. Support your national business. And again, I'm sorry for that. That was the final bell. Um, but anyway, that is the end of Chapter 6. 16, and the transformation of Europe. Um, I will be putting up chapter 17 probably this weekend, and of course, you don't have to worry. I'm just doing this in advance. This isn't something that you need to be doing now or listening to right now. You are completely fine. Don't worry, Um, but I'm just getting ahead of the game, so no problem. Um, I hope this was beneficial to you as always, and I look forward to creating more of these podcasts and really having more time in class help you with other things maybe you're writing maybe working and practicing multiple choice questions whatever but you guys have a great evening morning or or afternoon whatever time you're listening to this and i will see you the next time you're in my class or in the hallway have a good day